A sermon from the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 12, and we'll be starting at verse 13, Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Let me welcome those who are dialed in through technology and catching the live stream. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that you can uh, join us for the preaching of God's word. It's even more amazing that God still speaks through his word. This word accomplishes the purposes of God in the world. We welcome you, but we invite you to join us for worship in person. We'll be reading this section uh, from the English Standard Version. This is God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus... Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about all the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. Uh, collecting goods, talking about inherent inheritances. Uh, Jesus encountered many people who uh, dealt with the coming, comings and goings of life and, and the anxieties of possessions. Uh, this man who starts the section is asking about his inheritance. The household was being divided up. 
There's a famous comedian of old, it's probably back to the 1960s if I were to do my research, I won't name him. Comedian once defined home as the place where all of our stuff is. And you may remember his his little uh, dialogue, it's quite humorous uh, for the most part. He says, that's all your house is, a place to keep your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk about all the time, he says. A house is just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. Sometimes, he said, you leave your house to go on vacation, and you got to take some of your stuff with you. Got to take about two big suitcases full of stuff when you go on vacation. You got to take a smaller version of your house, he says. And people typically laugh at all his goings on. He says it's simply a second version of your stuff. He says, even if you fly all the way to Honolulu and and go across the continent, half an ocean to get there, you get to the hotel room, you open up your suitcases and put out all your stuff, and after that, you feel a little bit more at home. That's humorous because we can identify in small part. I feel good about my stuff. I don't know about you. But it's so easy in the world to have that as our only focus. The Bible engages us and our materialism and the realities of life in this world. Many folks care about their stuff and long for more stuff, and that's what keeps the economy going, it seems. Yet, imagine the vacationer in the comedy skit who gets to Hawaii with all his stuff if he had gone to the island of Maui a few weeks ago. And you hear and see this windstorm driving a burning inferno in your direction. How much stuff are you going to take with you? As alarms might be going off and your neighbors are running for their lives and cars around you are erupting into flame. You don't take your stuff. You run, perceiving the danger to life and limb. So what's the difference going on vacation and taking your stuff and Running before an inferno, you're aware of the danger. Your focus is on the things that matter most. As this man approaches Jesus amidst a very large crowd, Jesus is still on task going to Jerusalem and teaching about the kingdom of God, about the Father and himself. He takes this occasion to warn that man that something bigger than dividing your inheritance is at, is at hand, and you should pay attention to it. Sin is lurking, and Jesus names it and goes into it. How quickly we forget the spiritual realities and the proximity of a time and a day to give our account to God. When we get to that parable, we'll see that man's time is up. Our focus on possessions is helped when we have a focus on the truth of God's word and the spiritual realities Jesus makes clear. In this passage, he'll do that. He'll remind us more than once that life is more than stuff. He'll say it at least twice, verse 15, verse 23, in different ways. And these paragraphs hang together to make that point. Not only that life is more than that, but what it is in life to be truly rich is to know God as your father and his fatherly care. 
That's where we're going this morning. Jesus, the teacher, the savior, takes time not only to speak to the man and the crowds and his first disciples, but to speak to us. In these opening verses, 13 through 15, the the theme is beware of covetousness. We remember that massive crowds were gathered. Jesus had been teaching. Chapter uh, 9, 10, 11, and 12 here, Jesus is is focused on, on getting the word out as much as he can as he heads to Jerusalem. There was a man apparently in the crowd that speaks up. Someone in the crowd said to him, Well, I'm wondering if a man's going to speak up from the crowd. Maybe he's been listening. Oh, I have a question about that, Jesus. No, he doesn't have a question about what Jesus has been talking about. He's been focused on his own little need, his empty purse or his bothersome brother. Oh, that he had been listening to Jesus. As he speaks, this man with his troubles finds Jesus focused on the thing behind his trouble. The man said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So apparently these two brothers have lost their father and they're wrestling over the inheritance. We don't know the particulars, whether the, the, the brother that was responsible was being irresponsible or the younger brother or the other brother was being irresponsible and impatient. We don't know the guilt of the matter. And you know what? Jesus doesn't get sucked into that. He says, that's not my job. There are elders in the city gate that will help you. It's not my job here today. But it is my job to make known to you the needs of your heart and the greater needs that you don't perceive. He thinks he knows his greatest need. I really need that inheritance money. It'd be great if I got the check today. But Jesus rather points out the spiritual danger that's lurking and present And he says not only to the man, but um, he says to them. Jesus widens his audience, not just for the man, but perhaps to the man and his brother. Perhaps the brother was dragged along, so Jesus is speaking to them, but also to the crowd, to whomever can hear. And he says plainly, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Verse 15, there is a spiritual warning. What is covetousness? It's a sinful desire to have something possessed by someone else. Um, I thought the the dictionary I consulted had a great example how someone uh, uh, felt the fabric of of his friend's uh, new suit with a covetous heart. Um, It's that desire for what's not yours. And it's sin. We know that from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, from the law of God. Jesus here says, beware of all covetousness. There's more than one kind. It's present in different shapes and sizes, in different avenues. And that's probably why Jesus was talking to both brothers and beyond the brothers to the crowd. Some of the crowd were probably gathered wanting what someone else had. Oh, I wish I had what Jesus' disciples had. I wish I had covetousness, knows no boundaries. Del Ralph Davis says, Covetousness lies in ambush behind a whole plethora of legitimate concerns. Ah, there we have it. This man in his season of life had to deal with the settling of an estate. 
there's nothing illegitimate about that. But covetousness lurks in ambush behind many legitimate concerns. That's something we should take note of. Next time you're in discussion for a pay raise, or next time uh, you're talking to your neighbor about the boundary fence, or next time uh, you and your wife are working on the budget, uh, there's all sorts of opportunities for covetousness to creep in and grab you by the ankle, or by the wrist, or by the heart. All kinds. We don't have time this morning, but the Apostle Paul speaks of covetousness and how it was awakened in him by the law of God. In Romans 7, Romans 7, I believe, speaks of the believer when he encounters God's word and has struggles with it. Uh, Paul says how God's word made him aware that he was coveting, and then he found coveting all over. And it was the law that put the spotlight on his sin and his Savior who helped him in the end. The sin of covetousness calls for vigilance in us constantly. You are saved if you're in Christ. If you're born again, great. All your sins are covered. But be on your guard against sins like covetousness. And in verse 15, Jesus not only gives us the beware, but he gives us a behold. He wants our eyes to be open, not just to watch out for sin, but to see something more. Do you see how he goes on immediately? Uh, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life is more than that. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's first, he's not condemning having possessions. The Bible calls us to be good stewards of what we have. The Bible undergirds Western civilization's understanding of property rights and the integrity of property rights is, is, is really a Judeo-Christian ethic. Thou shalt not steal if you want to know. It means respect the property of others and be a good steward of your own property as a steward on behalf of God. So the Bible appreciates private property and having it and what we do with it matters. So Jesus is in condemning possessions. But there's a word here, and you see it clearly, the abundance of possessions. The accumulations, the surplus, the excessiveness. And, and we're not just talking the people on cable TV that are exposed as hoarders. You can't get around their house because they have so many boxes from the Home Shopping Network and Amazon. They're just piled everywhere. There are people that have that, that disorder. But he's talking to us. How many things of that do you need? How many things of this do you need? There's an excess that Jesus condemns. He corrects us to say that's not the purpose. That's not where our life is focused. Life is more than that. And here he points out the fallacy of greed. Douglas Milne calls it the fallacy of greed in the teachings of Jesus. The, the fallacy says that it's this belief that life consists in possessions and acquiring more brings more wealth and more happiness and more life. That's a fallacy. That's an error in thinking because it's not true. We can look at the, the scriptures in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes has a great verse uh, 
uh, if I can think of it quickly, um, Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Was it one of the Rockefellers who was questioned and said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he said, one more dollar. Just one more. One more. One more. There isn't enough. Wealth can become an idol. And excessive possessions, idolatry, and covetousness fuels that and feeds that. So Jesus says life is more than that. This is his theme And he unfolds it a couple of times in a couple of ways. Because that desire can be fueled by someone who doesn't have much, like this man seeking his inheritance. And the desire, even when you have a lot, is shown to not be enough. With a man with his barns and all the building. Jesus takes time to make this plain. So the next thing he does after he's made that statement is he teaches a parable. And that gives us our second heading this morning. Jesus tells a parable to make this point, And it's a marvelous parable because it's, I think, the only parable where we actually hear God speaking. In the parable, there's often a king or someone representing God's interests playing that part in the parable. But here, it's God speaking in a parable. Very sobering moment. I hope we pay attention. Because this second heading, this parable, reminds us to be wise and not foolish. To be wise and not foolish. It starts with this wealthy farmer. He has a problem. Do you know what his problem is? He thinks he knows what his problem is. His land has been so productive. And notice uh, the narrator tells us that it's the land. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So the narrator reminds us how this guy got rich. He may not be the greatest farmer, but God blessed him through the crops of the field. God gives the rain. God gives the growth. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got a problem. I've got so much good stuff. Is that his real problem? No. You see, life is more than the stuff. The problem isn't that you don't have enough stuff. And your problem when you have a lot of stuff isn't where to keep it. The issues Jesus wants us, even today in modern America, to focus on are the issues behind the surface. Like the brother seeking his inheritance, this farmer, blessed as he is, does not perceive the spiritual battle at hand. Instead, this farmer becomes for us Uh, A great example of folly and following greed and falling into covetousness. This anatomy of folly. It's ironic that the man who took such care to uh, prepare his earthly needs turns out to be a fool. He looks like he's uh, well organized. He's probably got the cleanest barns in town and his machinery works and his laborers are well paid. And all of those things might be in good order. But God calls him a fool. It's a moral judgment. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a brain. It means that he's not thinking of God. He is godless in his thoughts and plans. 
This term anatomy of folly comes from uh, one of the commentators that just really unpacked this so carefully. It's like uh, seeing an autopsy of this folly. Um, Del Ralph Davis is the one who provides it in his uh, commentary on Luke, this anatomy of folly. Quickly going through the verses, in verses 17 and 18, the first thing we see in this anatomy of folly is a false estimation of blessing. The farmer assumes that since he's blessed, he's got to keep all this stuff. I've got all this stuff, what do I do? Yesterday we had a men's breakfast and there were a bunch of donuts left over. You know, guys, you were here, you saw how many? They didn't pick out on all the donuts, so thank you. And I'd say, oh, what do I do with all these donuts? I know what the old me 20 years ago might have said. Oh, good, I'll take them home. Got a lot of donuts to eat. We pay it forward and you'll find them on the table today for our coffee time. This farmer assumed that because he was blessed, he had to keep all this stuff. To whom much is given, much is required. No, he was going to keep it. So he thinks his problem is where to put it. In verse 19, he has his folly seen in his false estimation of time. He assumes that he has years to work with. But he doesn't. How much time do you have? Boy, that's an awkward question. I'm at an age where I think about it from time to time. As I see grief strike near many of you, I think about it. Our culture doesn't. That's the last thing our culture wants to think about. But Jesus uses this prosperous farmer to show us one of the dimensions of folly. And it's thinking you've got all the time in the world. Who knows that? What folly. Or his false sense of purpose. Again, this list from uh, Dr. Davies um, this, this anatomy of folly he has a false sense of purpose in verse 19. He says, relax, be at ease. You've got the good life now. That's why I'm blessed. <laughs> really? Is that why God blesses people so you can spend it on yourself and enjoy it in yourself and be at ease in this life? I think not. What folly do we see? Or also in verse 19, his false sense of control. He says, you have. He's looking at what he has and what he's going to do. He's making his plans. He's probably never heard of the wisdom from the epistle of James that said uh, uh, how we ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this and that. We don't know what a day brings forth. He really thinks he has control. In God's rebuke, you see the wording in God's rebuke to him as God speaks inside the parable, verse 20, fool, this night your soul is required of you, so time is up. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You don't have control over that. Yes, we can leave a legacy to our children. The Bible encourages that, that to be faithful generation to generation. But this man's folly was his sense of control and his own uh, esteem. Finally, there's this false sense of value. God says, you've got ample treasures. And if the man were listening, he'd say, yeah, I, I got it all. He says, but what have you done for your soul? Your soul is impoverished. Your soul is not rich towards me. It's not right with me. 
an anatomy of folly. This man with his bigger barns, and I've preached on this at length in the past, but it raises the question, is this something we can identify with in our moments, perhaps of our thinking amiss? Have we gone the way of the fool, thinking we have control, we have time, we, we know why we're blessed so we can keep it for ourselves? Jesus is trying to rip the covers off of those realities and get us to think. Because life is more than stuff. Will we hear Jesus? He's making it as plain as possible. I sometimes think of this when we sing that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, how I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Because we think we know better. It's folly. It will lead us to live unguarded lives and it will harm our soul. Instead, as Jesus tells the parable and he gets to the end with that line, he says, so it is, this is Jesus speaking after the parable, verse 21, so it is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We need to acknowledge and serve God. We need to divest ourselves from all these cravings for riches and this impulse for more, more, more. And we need to begin investing in spiritual pursuits to be rich toward God. The Lord Jesus makes that so clear in the Sermon on the Mount and in many other places. Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Corinthians. We see it every time a a hearse drives by. There's no U-Haul attached to the hearse. You can't take it with you. So we need to lay up treasures in heaven. We can send our treasure ahead by spending it on earth in ways that make us rich toward God. We'll see a little bit more of this next week when we look specifically at verses 32 to 34. You may have wondered why we're stopping. That will be for next week. But let's look at our third heading this morning, verses 22 to 31, and how they summons us to believe in God the Father. That's what these verses go on to say as Jesus turns to his disciples. That's his focus. Those who have followed him and believed in him, he wants them not to miss the point. It's not simply the negative. Life is more than that, but spiritual life is knowing and believing and trusting the Father in heaven. That's where Jesus is bringing them and us. And it begins with verse 22. Jesus acknowledges the basic things of life. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. There's that acknowledgement. Life is more than that, but yes, we do need food. We do need clothing. I, I remember the rude awakening I had at college when I opened a drawer one day and there, there weren't any more clean clothes in it. And I go, oh no, what happened? I didn't do the laundry. That magical supply of fresh clothes that used to come from my mother. Um, where are they? 
Life is more than that. We need our clothing. We need our food. Jesus acknowledges that. But he says there's more than those things here. And those things and concern for those things ought not to cause anxiety or worry. He acknowledges and then focuses. And he gives these two examples, food and clothing. And he goes on with those two areas to give examples of how God supplies those needs. You see, he's turning from worry, from covetousness, and away from worry and anxiety to faith in God. That's the whole progression. Christianity, by the way, is not just don't do this, don't do that. But Christianity says, instead of that, trust in God and keep his word. So that's why we brought all these paragraphs together. This is where Jesus is going. So he begins making the father known. He says this in verse 24. He's going to talk about ravens and lilies. But that's not why he's talking about them. They're examples of God's good care. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Boy, these ravens. Do you know what ravens are? They're like crows, only bigger and maybe meaner. I actually saw ravens at the Tower of London. They, they keep these big, big birds actually still there in these pens. Uh, the raven. They're the scavenger birds of the world. They, they clean up the roadkill and... So they don't really hunt and store food, but God provides the roadkill. And God has this system. It's it's a marvel, really, when we think about it. It's not the bird that we typically talk about. Jesus had talked about the sparrow recently. Now he's talking about a big bird that we usually don't pay attention to. But he says, even that bird, God makes provision for them. And Jesus employs logic and rhetoric to say, How much more? He argues from the lesser to the greater. If those, we don't want to call them dirty birds, if those ravens of the street are cared for, how much more a human being who bears the image of God? Jesus is speaking to the disciples to to see in nature the care of God. God. And in verse 25, he makes it clear that anxiety over those things So if you're not going to trust in the God who provides and you're going to pursue anxiety, that won't help. Worry doesn't work. That's that's the truth. If you have an example of how worry helps, let me know because I've I've lived a long time. I don't think it helps. I I can't think of it, how it works. It, It often gets in the way. I want to remember something. I just write it down. I don't worry about it. And later on when I find the note, I go, oh, I'm so glad I found that note. A small step of carefulness helps a lot more than worry. Jesus makes the case here that even by worrying, you can't add to the span of life. He's not talking, some Bible translators think we're talking about the stature, how tall a person is. It Pretty much the, the Greek seems to be reflecting add to the length of your life your longevity, your lifespan. And that's where the ESV translates it. You can't add an hour to your span of life, no matter how much you, you, you worry. Then he goes on to speak about the, uh, uh, the lilies, verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. That's high praise. Solomon had a lot of gold. 
Solomon had the finest clothes and he had a lot of uh, clothiers and, and workers to adorn himself. He had, it was the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel, right? He had it all. But that flower, and the lily here is a term, don't just think of the Easter lily, which can be singular in its beauty, but this is a, a reference to a lot of different types of flowers in the ancient world. So if your favorite is the chrysanthemum or something else, that's in view. Flowers can be stunning. You think of an orchid. It's fine beauty. Or my favorite is the tulip. All the different colors. And its strength and its beauty. Jesus points out a couple things. Not only are they beautiful and and well adorned, but they really only last a short time. And it's the season of fall here in New York, so we know that winter's coming. And we won't be seeing beautiful flowers. So Jesus says, if these flowers, as beautiful but as brief as their lifespan is, uh, God provides for it, what about you? What about your life? Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? That argument Look to the lessons of the world. God cares. God has the ability to provide. Won't he do that for you? Jesus is pointing out these provisions to summon us to faith, to see our value to God, and to summon our faith in him. And that's where he lands in verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. There's a constant battle between worry and faith. You're going to trust God or you're going to not trust him and tremble and be consumed by worry. David Jackman says, Jesus tells us the secret of conquering our anxieties as well as telling guys not to worry. Jesus does this by setting our human needs within this larger framework of the Father's care. See and believe the care of God for his people. Seeking the kingdom of God, seeking God's provision is faith in action. The word faith isn't there. You don't see it in the page. But that's the evidence of faith. I believe God's care for me. Therefore, I will seek God's care for me. I believe in God's watchful eye and his wisdom. Therefore, I will pursue following him. That's what faith looks like. Jesus is calling us in this whole paragraph to believe in the Father and not worry. I was surprised how many famous preachers and scholars all quoted the same little poem on this passage. It's one I had forgotten from my own youth. It was written by Elizabeth Cheney in 1859. That's a good while ago. It's short. It's only a couple sentences. And I bet you've heard it. You can nod if you've heard it. It's called The Robin and the Sparrow. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. 
does nature itself rebuke us in our folly? We bear the image of God. We can't deny his existence. Jesus makes him known to us as a father. He says, come unto me and I'll bring you into my father's house. It's a call to faith in God. Lay down your strivings, lay down your anxieties, your worry, and flee covetousness. Get your eyes on the right prize, the right place to invest and pursue. It's a relationship with God and life in his kingdom under his care. Let me just give you three specific exhortations as we close. Number one, realize what truly matters and avoid what doesn't. Realize what truly matters. Some of that wisdom comes with age. I was talking with somebody my age the other day and says, frankly, I'm, I'm glad I'm at my stage of life. I don't, I don't get, uh, a, a, I'm unflappable. I don't get bothered by so many things that don't matter. And uh, yeah. I think Christian maturity, when our faith matures, we see God's provisions and what truly matters. Jesus is at pains here to get our eyes off the things of the world. He had taught very explicitly at the end of that last passage. He said, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. What's the difference? If the nations don't really know their father, and we do. Realize what truly matters. What possessions are worth pursuing? And they're not all here on earth. Secondly, realize that everything rests on having a relationship with God the Father. This is the quote that uh, stirred me. One of the commentators said, everything rests on having a father, and having such a father, you can rest. It's the provision that satisfies. Worry doesn't work. Anxiety doesn't work. Covetousness will get you into deep trouble. But knowing the Father matters. To live otherwise is a secular mindset. Do you see the difference? I I know Christians that are savvy in the marketplace. They they know the ins and outs of, of money and investing. I talked with one. Uh, just the other day, and uh, wow, what, what a mind. And yet he has his priorities right. He's a believer. That was great. It's the secular mindset that doesn't include God in whatever their professional awareness is. That's the trouble. Because God is key. To live without God is secular. It's a pagan life if there's no place for God in your plans or your purposes. People may be surprised when you tell them you're a Christian because they haven't seen the prominence of God in your thinking, in your planning, and amidst your possessions. Everything rests on having a relationship with God. And finally, God's greatest provision for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. The analogy was started, you know, see how God cares for the ravens. He gives them food. He he adorns the lilies. What does God do for the sinner? 
How does he clothe us? How does he array us? How does he feed us? The answer, my friends, is really well summarized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the living word. Jesus, who conveys to us truth that's sufficient for life and godliness. There's the message that feeds us, that makes us wise. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of what we'll inherit. He transforms our lives. He doesn't leave us as he found us. Jesus Christ is God's provision for us. The righteousness of Christ is our robe. Trying to make yourself righteous and acceptable to God, you're going to fall short. Let me just save you some time. You need the robes of righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ. To be found in him is to have eternal life, is to be welcomed. When when God sees us, he should see us our union with Christ. God's greatest provision for us is Christ, your possession. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Or that other really short parable. It was a man who found the pearl of great price. He went and sold all that he had. All that he had to buy that pearl. Christ is here. Christ has come in the preaching of his word. Do you possess him? Will you possess him? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, your precious word, how it shows us Christ's how it reminds us of the things to avoid and the things to hold fast to. Father, may your word have its way with us, shape us, free us, untangle us from materialism and greed and covetousness, which are so accepted and promoted in the culture around us. May we hear your word. May we see our Father in heaven. May we understand how your blessings and the abundance you give us are to be used not just stored for self. Father, teach us by your word, shape us, do the hard things in us that we might bring you more glory and that we might convey the gospel to others and adorn the truth of the gospel with our lives. Father, we ask all these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.